sometimes I feel like I'm living on the show, kids say the darndest things. Uh, if you've ever met my daughter, Karis, she has some of the funniest things you've ever heard. Uh, one day, a Sunday school teacher came up to me, and they said, you know, Karis today in Sunday school, she just bursts out of nowhere right in the middle of me teaching, and she goes, ah, my dad's not a cracker. He's a human. <laughs> These are the types of things that I live with with, with Karis. She is full of joy and hilarious things that she says. But if you've ever been around kids, you kind of have seen that kids are kind of the most random humans you'll ever meet. They speak whatever on, whatever's on their mind with no filter. And uh, sometimes they drop the deep, deepest truths. Sometimes they drop the most keenest wisdom and insight into our world. But if I'm honest, sometimes they're also the most selfish humans you'll meet. Even at a young age, you see this selfishness on full display where they fight over toys, they demand their own way, and sometimes it feels like it's an impossible task just to get them to eat their food and not have them watch too much screen time. If you are a parent with young kids, or you've had parents, or if you've had young kids as a parent, you can probably relate to some of those things. But it's interesting to see that even at a young age, their natural state of their heart is self-centeredness. I also find it interesting that adults never really outgrow that self-centeredness heart The natural state of our own heart is that we long for security, that we long for significance. And when we are left to our own devices, we pursue the things that feels good to us, the things that feel right to us. We see people that pursue all kinds of relationships because they're looking for a partner that's going to make them feel secure. We see people who are going to be pursuing wealth because they're longing for significance. As people pursue their own delights, people are going to take small steps of compromise throughout their life, attaining what they want, what they are longing for, and they end up doing things that they never thought they'd actually do in their life. This, what happens is when we pursue our desires and our delights or the things that we long for, we don't find freedom, we don't find the things that we thought we would find, instead we find bondage, and oppression. The alluring promise of freedom is unattainable through our own selfish gain. And in essence, people become lovers of self more than they become lovers of God. And this is the result of small steps of selfish pursuit that where in the end they become further and further and further away from God. This is actually where we find the people of God today where they have slowly drifted away from God, taking many small steps of disobedience as they pursued their own delights and desires above God's. This is where we've been in our sermon series the last few months, which is the story where every story, every character, every command, every event in the Bible is all part of a bigger story, all pointing us to the greater story of of Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Over the last few weeks, we've been focusing on the nation of Israel and how God brought them out of bondage in Egypt, how he led them through the the desert. And then last week, we saw how through 
through their faith-filled obedience that they came into the promised land for the first time in 400 years. And God was with them, and God brought them victory. And so today's message uh, stands in direct contrast to where we were last week. Last week, the people of God, through faith and obedience, they conquered the land. Today's passage, a disobedient people, are conquered by the people in the land. There, God leads a faithful people to prosperity. Here, God leads an idolatrous people into defeat. In every way possible, the people abandon God in pursuit of themselves. The people's hearts turn away from God and their selfish desires and through their selfish desires and, and their own satisfaction. But as you read through Judges 2, them abandoning God didn't really come out of nowhere, but it was because of small steps of obedience that led them to turn away from God. As we are about to see, the people of God slowly drifted from a place of trust and obedience. Starting in verse 6, we see when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to the inheritance to take possession of the land. Last week, we talked about the faith-filled obedience of Joshua leading people to, to victory. He was a man who served and loved God with his whole heart. At the end of the, his life, he knows the natural state of the hearts of people, and so he brings them all together in Joshua 24, 15. And he either said, you, you will either serve God or you will serve yourselves. And so after he dismissed the people... They were all vowing to serve God. They were all vowing to make their lives in submission to God. They were going to follow out the commands to wipe out the people in Canaan. And so, of course, naturally, Joshua dies of old age, and he's leaving the elders behind. But after his, his death, the people have a fervor to serve and obey God. They go out, and they drive out the nations, and they're going to claim the land that God gave. No, no, that's not, that's not what happens. We see in verses 21 that they didn't drive out the nations. They didn't obey the Lord to conquer the land because it was too hard. Okay, okay. So the people are going to wage war against the people. No, in verses 28, they just saw the utility of keeping these, their enemies alive and making slaves because they didn't want to obey God and driving them out. Certainly. Okay. Certainly the people are going to obey God in not giving their kids into intermarriage, right? We're going to see in chapter 3, no, they, they, they failed that one too. Rather than keep themselves separate from the sinful people in the land... They intermarry, and they are directly disobeying God's command to stay within the line of, of, of Israel. But because of these small steps of blatant disobedience, leads something to truly disheartening in the people of Israel is that the next generation don't know God, as we see in verse 10. And there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord uh, or the work that he had done for Israel. Their disobedience leads to the next generation not knowing who God is. 
Remember last week we talked about uh, the importance of going out into our world and making God's name great in our homes and in our nations. And while the people loved God, it's, it's, it's clear that they didn't make that a priority because the entire next generation falls into sin. They abandon God. And this is a warning for us. This is what happens when we don't proclaim God's name to others also. So, in just a short time after Joshua's death, the people fall into complete rebellion, not, not through big immoral crisis or, or failures, but through small steps of disobedience, where they are willfully choosing to ignore God and the commands that he has given them in pursuit of their own selfish desires. As we are here in the 21st century, it's easy to look at these Israelites in the uh, many centuries ago and, and look down on them because of their disobedience, because of their, their idolatry. But I'm going to be honest. A lot of the same sins that are present in the nation of Israel are still present in our hearts today. You know, it's not hard where we turn on the news and we hear of a major scandal happening in our world. We've heard people uh, with major scandals in churches and in the workplace. People who we thought would never fail morally are now failing and having their dirty laundry aired for everyone to gossip about. You know that big embezzlement story of someone stealing millions? You're like, wow, that person was, that person was, a, was a saint. Or hearing about that pastor with rampant affairs. The people that we thought would the people that we thought were kind and, and nice end up being abusive and jerks behind closed doors. You know, it doesn't just happen where people wake up one morning and they're just going to commit these big sins, but it starts small areas, taking a little office supplies here, stealing a bit of a little time from your employer there. It doesn't take long before you're pocketing cash and stealing other things from your employer. You know, a little lustful look here, a little pornography there, so one day you're in the middle of a fair, leaving a destruction in your family and marriage. And so we don't walk away from God overnight, but it's the result of just small steps of disobedience, small steps of compromise, where we are gravitating towards these steps of disobedience because our hearts are naturally inclined towards ourselves. They are naturally inclined to turn away from God. We know that this is in our hearts because this is what we're told at the end of Judges. In 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The hearts of the people were already being pulled towards disobedience from what we know God wants us to do. It was it's what happened to Adam and Eve. It's what happened here in Judges, and it's still happening in our hearts today, where the natural state of our heart is selfish and self-centered. And when we pursue our own delights and our own pursuits over obeying and trusting God, this is where we find that disobedience results in God's anger, as we'll see in Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
What's interesting about this is that God defines what evil is, and that is people worshiping other gods that are not him. The evil heart is rejecting God in all things, rejecting his provision for their lives, rejecting his goodness, and rejecting everything about God as they pursue their own selfish, self-centered desires. So those desires give way to evil behavior, which is what we would see, and that's what we would define as evil. But the thing about sin is it doesn't start in behavior. It always starts in our heart. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 5 when he tells us that hating someone in our heart is the same as murdering someone that we are where we break that commandment and he even goes on and he says that the same thing about our lust we're lusting after someone with our heart with our eyes is the same thing as committing adultery our sinful heart influences what we do and the thing about sin it never gets better it only gets worse as we see in verse 12 and they abandoned the lord the god of their fathers they went after other gods and bowed down to them. This disobedience that we see makes way to further disobedience, leading to a wicked and sinful heart that are abandoning God and inciting his anger. The Lord's anger is provoked against this disobedience. So some read about God's anger, I just want to say, we immediately think of our own parent coming home, rage-filled, going on a war path, and where we hide ourselves from our father's anger because we don't want to be in the midst of that. We can often project how we read God's anger, or we can project our own father's sinful anger onto how we read about God's anger. And there are certainly times when our fathers have blown off the handle for the simplest things. But do we remember when our fathers were rightly angry at us, but they didn't respond in the emotional response that we thought they would? See, God's, God's anger is, is not him flying off the handle against us. Instead, the image that we get is God's anger is a result of his deep hurt and love for his people. The times or this is him stepping into our lives where he's hurt and he's angry with us. And rather than blowing up on us, God instead responds calmly. But this calmness is, is bringing us to a place of discipline. And God is using his anger as a way to discipline us as we see in verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. When we actively pursue sin, God is going to give us over to our sins to feel the consequences of our actions. This is him disciplining us, where he's giving us over to our sins. He's selling us into bondage so that we experience the full weight and the full burden and the full depravity of our sin. And so like a good parent, God is disciplining his kids, and he also disciplines us when he gives us over to our sin, where he is teaching them character, he's teaching them wisdom. And 
over the course of the next 350 years or the span of the book of Judges, it takes a hard lesson for them to learn what God is wanting to do because of the discipline in their lives. And so this is what God is doing in us when we blatantly and constantly pursue our own sin, where he will eventually give us over to our own sin to, feel, to have us feel the suffering that sin brings. He allows us to suffer because of the consequence of our own disobedience. The more that God, the more that we give in to sin, the more that God is actively working against us, as we see in verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, and they were in terrible distress. So not only does God give them over to sin, but he removes his blessings of protection, his blessings of his presence from them, and that he's no longer fighting for them, but he's fighting against them. We see that God allows us to suffer because of our disobedience. And this is all the result of our own selfish pursuit of our own desires. If we were to end the message here this morning, you'd go home thinking, man, Jake was kind of depressing today. He just talked about sin and talked about how we're sinful and there's no hope for us. But what we find in the last half of the, half of the chapter is that God is not finished with us. God is not finished with a sinful people. He continues to work amongst his people, drawing them to something even better. What we see is that we may put ourselves in a place of sin, and God may actually let us sit in our sin for a, for a time, but he will eventually deliver us and save us from our sin. And we see that despite our sin, God delivers us through his grace. God never abandons his people, but because of his love for us, he seeks to deliver us from our sin, as we see in verse 16. And it says, starts out with then. And I just want to encourage you, if you have a, a, a pen handy, just underline that word then. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who, who plundered them. God is delivering his people through, uh, through, from their sins while they are in the midst of, of suffering from their sins. And throughout the book of Judges, he's going to raise up men and women to save his people from the bondage of sin. He sees their brokenness. He has compassion on his people. And he delivers us also from our, the chaos that we have brought into our own lives. We may be suffering because of our own consequences but God is going to restore us and bringing us back into relationship with him. As we see in verse 17, that because of our sin, the people are pulled back, uh, from, or pulled back into the lingering sin in their lives, and there's no way for them to turn back through the judges. They enter this downward cycle where the people constantly turn away from God through disobedience, going back to their sin, and through the course of the book of Judges, God is going to give them over to sin. He's going to redeem them from sin. And the people are going to suffer under sin again. And the cycle is going to repeat seven times throughout the book of Judges. But every time that the people are given over to sin and decay, God graciously delivers his people, as we see in verse 18. Whenever the Lord 
raised up judges for them. The Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. Again, sadly, this happens seven times over the course of the book of Judges. We just have a small summary of what happens in Judges. But this covers 350 years of Israel's history. They turn away from God through disobedience. God becomes angry. God gives them over to their sins. The people cry out for mercy and deliverance. God has compassion on his people, and he delivers them. And then they turn back to sin. People are stuck in this downward spiral of sin and lawlessness where they're displaying kind of this yo-yo faith where they're either hot for God or they are cold, and there's never really a stable point in their life. As we look at the yo-yo faith of the Israelites, isn't it true that we experience that also? Where we find God on this mountaintop experience like a retreat or a mission trip, and we're excited to live for Jesus, and then we start getting back into the ruts of life and find that we fall back into same patterns of sin that aren't dealt with. And then we lose our passion for God and we start living for ourselves and life just sucks. We are suffering. We are suffering under the consequences of our own sins. And then in a moment of desperation, we come back to God. We come back to the people of God where we find in a short time, that this, the suffering that we are experiencing is resolved. And then we feel good again about our lives, about our faith. And then we return back into sin. Let me just say, this is not how God wants us to live. This is not how God desires that we find him. This is not how he desires that our, our, that our lives look like this. But he desires that we are in a place of peace and joy in our lives. And this peace and joy only comes through constant constant obedience to him. But sometimes that constant obedience seems too hard for us. Like the Israelites, we come to God when life is hard. And then when life gets Easy again, we tend to forget God. We are relying on ourselves and we pursue ourselves. But in spite of that, here's what God, here's why God answers our suffering as we see. For the Lord was moved to pity for their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. In verse 18, speaks of God's deep compassion and love for us that even in the midst of our sin, even in the even despite our sin, that he constantly delivers us out of our sin and delivers us to a place of rest, a place of, 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 of joy and delight. But this sustained joy and delight only comes through obedience. But it does raise a, an issue for us, how do we deal with the ongoing lie, the sin in our lives? Because if sin is not dealt with, we are going to fall into the same sinful habits that the Israelites fell into. And here's the reality. We can't deal with sin on our own. We need someone greater than us to deal with our sin. And so we see that in verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. 
The same sinful heart that turned people away from worshiping God is the same sinful heart in us turning away our worship from God. And this yo-yo faith is a symptom of not making God the ultimate, the highest priority in our lives. And so we need our hearts to be changed in order to have strength to not pursue our sin. And as we see all of this culmination that our sin needs to be dealt with, that we keep falling into these sinful habits, this is how the book of Judges points us to Jesus. Jesus took all of our sin and all of our disobedience on himself and delivering us once and for all from the bondage and oppression of sin. And it's through Jesus that we see God stepping into our lives and paying the price for our sins, removing the, the, the weight of the sin from us, all while we were still enemies of God. All while we were actively and openly rejecting God, he stepped into our lives, taking on our sin. And so then in offering us grace, he replaces our sinful and our selfish heart with a living heart of flesh, and that it is a heart that can truly pursue and know God, though we still have a lingering state of sin or selfishness that continues to impact everything that we do. But what we see through the book of Judges is that it teaches us that God allows us to suffer because of our disobedience, but he also delivers us by his grace. Where the judges were unable to defeat or to deal with the sin in the people, Christ deals once and for all. Where the people needed constant deliverance from sins, Christ delivered by his blood. And through his sacrifice, he invites people into a personal relationship with him where we are able to make him the ultimate priority of our life. Pastor Tim Keller says, he says, the relationship God wants us to enjoy with him and the only relationship which will avoid idolatry is a passionate, personal relationship of love. While the relationship is one of obedience, this obedience is rooted in a love for God. Jesus says the same thing in John 14, 15, when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The abundant life or the good life begins by us taking steps of obedience towards God as we pursue him, as we love him above all things. So what do we, how do we obey Jesus in our lives today? And it be, first and foremost, it begins with surrender. The question we have is, what areas of your life are not in submission to Jesus? The Christian life is to be one of surrender, giving him all that we are, giving him our desires, giving him the, 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 our whole life to use for the kingdom. And when we are in a place of constant surrender, we don't experience that yo-yo faith where we fall into sin, we find God's anger where we suffer under our sin, and then God delivers us and we fall back into sin. When we surrender our lives to Christ, the yo-yo faith is, is, is gone. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is, maybe for you, your first step of obedience is just coming to know and love Jesus. Christ is what your heart has been longing for, for security, for freedom. 
And you can only find that security and that significance through Jesus. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you just to take that step of obedience to know, to know God, to love God. And it just starts by simply believing that the Lord is, that Jesus is your Lord, that He is here for you. Maybe for some of you, taking those small steps of obedience is, is surrendering specific areas of sin in your life, giving those over to Him. Maybe some of you are, are living with the secret sin of pornography, and you are hiding these secrets from your spouse. You are pursuing intimacy, and you're instead finding shame and regret. And I want to say that God sees you, and that God loves you, and that God does not desire that you are pursuing those things. God doesn't just want you to be free of this addiction. God wants you to be free from all addictions. And he wants to be ruling and reigning in your life where he is sitting on the throne of your heart. Whatever you are struggling with, I want you to know that God wants you to find true and lasting freedom in him. And he wants you to find a life of abundance. And so surrendering for God is a step of just giving that up to him. It starts by confessing those secret sins to God, and he already knows them. But I want you to know that when you come to confess and repent your sin to Jesus, he doesn't scold you, he doesn't reject you, he offers you his forgiveness. He offers you and extends his grace and his mercy towards you. And I want to just invite you this morning, if, if that is you, if you are struggling with some area of your life that you need to surrender to Jesus, um, starts by seeking a trusted, godly person that you can confess your sins to, who can help walk alongside in your life, where you can find true and lasting freedom. I'm not sure where, if that's you this morning, but if, but if you just need prayer for anything, I'm going to be right here in the front pew during our, our next song, and I'm, I'm, I want to pray for you to help you find that surrender. As we see, that small, step of di- small steps of disobedience lead us away from God, but it's steps of obedience that lead us toward deeper intimacy and freedom in God. The second way that we can obey Jesus this morning is by directing our desires and delights toward him. As we think about this, what areas of your life are you serving your desires? Since our hearts are naturally gravitating away from God through our own selfishness, we have to be intentional to cultivate our hearts towards God, where we are delighting in him more than we are delighting in our desires where we are pursuing his ways above our own, if it means that we are making room for him to live, uh, that we are making him our top priority. So the first thing that we do in delight in directing our desires to God is by making the word of God a priority for us. We can only know what God commands us to do through a consistent reading of his word. And through it, we know the life and the peace that is only offered through God's presence. We don't just read the Bible for information where we're trying to understand what the original languages meant, but we are reading the Bible for transformation as we are coming face to face with God Almighty each and every morning. I want to invite you just to start reading a Bible plan in a consistent time of the day. 
You can find that through a Bible app where we have some available in the, in the lobby. Or you can even invite a friend or two to read same passages of Scripture together each morning and discuss what the, what, what the Word of God says. The second thing that we can do is make prayer a priority. I want to encourage you just to pick up a prayer journal, record your prayers, write your prayers down as you are focusing on different structures of prayer, but finding a consistent time and a place to, to pray is going to allow you to hear from God more consistently through his word, through his people. And then the last thing that we can do is we can make church a priority. Making a church a priority is making a, our faith a priority. I just want to be real with you. Church commitment in the U.S. was already declining before the pandemic. People were already seeing, like, I don't really need to make a priority to be with the people of God. All I, all I need for my faith is Jesus and my Bible. Let me say, it is definitely true that all you need for your faith to know Jesus is, is Jesus and the Word of God. But we also need each other to grow in our faith. And when we are making church a priority, we are making our own faith, our own spiritual maturity, a, a growth, a priority. As I look at my life over the last 15 years, the two places that I have grown the most in my faith has been serving alongside people and has been in a life group with people. One of the values that we have here at Restoration Church is that we belong together. God never intended us to live life alone, but he desires that our faith is grown alongside other believers. If you're not currently serving at Restoration Church, will you step into serving our kids for VBS next month? The people of Israel didn't make a priority in proclaiming God's goodness to the future generations. But VBS and Sunday school is a way for us to prioritize making God's goodness and faithfulness known to the next generation. You can find opportunities to get involved at restorationyakma.com slash VBS. But Restoration Church, I love you, and I pray that you find ways to grow in your love and your delight for God, because as his sons and daughters, he loves us beyond comprehension. He delights in you when you come to delight in him. This delight that we find with God it doesn't come through us striving. It doesn't come through us having to earn God's love. But it comes simply as we pursue him above all things. We pray with you.